First of all, thank you for the 800 emails, texts, phone calls in the first five minutes with all of our technical difficulties. I didn't get that many texts and emails when I was in the hospital. (laughs) So you're all paying attention. That's what it told me. Um, And let me just say a word to our technical people. I just love you guys. If you're all here, I'd have you stand up, turn around, look at them, and applaud. Just go ahead and applaud for them anyway in your houses. (laughs) Thanks for taking care of all of this. Second of all, let's dispel some rumors. Uh, Yes, I was uh, in the emergency room this week. No, I was not admitted to the hospital. No, I don't have coronavirus. Yes, I had a kidney stone and diverticulitis, whatever that is. And um, all I know is it's not very pleasant. I hope you never get it. Um, Yeah, it's great. I'm doing better today, just a little weak. But no, I'm not going to die. Well, maybe not. At least not right now. Okay, so we are um, in a series, kind of a long series. It didn't intend to be this long, but with all that's happening, I thought we'd extend it. Songs of the Redeemed. So we started the first half in our Lent proper, looking at the songs of the redeemed out of Revelation. So we stepped over into the throne room and looked at it from there. And then for the second half, kind of our extended Lent, if you will, we've stepped back into our world and taken a look at what goes on. We have a natural thing going on, a natural metaphor. We're wearing masks everywhere I go. We have masks. And so we're getting used to this idea. And so it's exactly what the metaphor that Paul used. When the veil or the mask is taken off, what happens? So today we're actually going to be talking about when the mask comes off, what is life like with our neighbor? So um, we started out 2 Corinthians 3, that when a person turns to Christ, the mask comes off. And so there we talked about the fact that we can look accurately into the mirror And we can see the glory of the Lord. But at the same time that that is happening, just like with Moses, we begin to reflect the glory of the Lord even more. So we get to see it more deeply as we gaze, and we get to reflect it even more. So then um, we move to what does it look like with ourself? We looked at 2 Corinthians 5, and one of the things that we lost at the fall was an accurate perception. And when the mask comes off, we can begin to see ourselves in better and healthier ways, more accurate ways. Uh, Paul talks about that, not to think more highly than we should, uh, Romans 12, but to think with accuracy about who we are. So we can finally begin to see who we are in the Lord. Today we're going to look at what it means to look at our neighbor and to love him more deeply. Our neighbor and these are connected. So in Matthew chapter 22... When Jesus was, he was asked a question about the commandments and the law, uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, uh, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So one of them, an expert in the law, I love that, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. It's a quote out of Deuteronomy. But then he goes on. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a quote from Leviticus 19. 
all of the law and the prophets, the entire system that God is looking at, all of the law and prophets that God that put, put in place, the system, hang on these two commandments. And they're all dependent on that. So it's a quote from Leviticus 19, verses 18 and 34. Why would God need to tell us to love one another? Why would he even need to tell us that? And it's interesting that that second commandment occurs in the section of Leviticus, chapter 19, which is talking about holiness, becoming like God, being transformed, I, I argue, being transformed back into the image of God. Now we know in the New Testament that takes the image of Christ. But why would he have to tell us to love one another? Isn't that natural? No, it's not. It's not natural, not in a fallen world. Don't be deceived. We have been raised in a county or a culture, I should say, uh, where this principle has been taught for a long time. We're used to it, but it's not natural. Travel with me to some of the third world countries and you'll see what I'm talking about. No, it's not natural. So God would have to tell us that. But then the command goes further. He says that you should love your neighbor as yourself. This was the topic last week. You can only love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. They go together. They go together. So how do we appropriately love ourselves? Well, let's remember why we were created to begin with. We were made as relational beings. Remember we said at the very back early on, we were made in the image of the triune God, the God who relates perfectly together. Uh, the three persons of the Trinity. And we're made in that image. So we were created to find meaning in our communities. That's where we locate our identity, our significance, is in our communities. We are created to help each other find individual worth in our relationships as with one another. Further, our creation as male and female was designed to be understood in relationship. I argued last week that With the fall, instead of being man and woman, it became man without woman and woman without man or man and woman against everything else. And so even our masculinity and our femininity is properly defined in the context of each other. I've said many times to to some of the women, if you want to know if you're pretty, don't go look at the magazines. They're going to give you a picture that's not even achievable. Ask me. Ask one of the guys. I love the women in our church. I just love watching them, the way they dress, the way they do things. And uh, they are so delightful to be around. So femininity is best, is the best defined in, in the context of masculinity and vice versa. So all of society was designed to endow meaning. Our communities, our fellow workers, our families, our marriages, on and on and on. They're designed, it was designed and created by God to endow meaning and purpose with each of our lives. The problem is that these relationships all became the means for our own benefit. Our relationship become the means for our own benefit. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Cain blamed Abel. And on and on and on it goes. This began, uh, you can think of it as a pun, Humanities inhumanity with each other. The very definition of the word humanity is not very achievable the way God designed it. So this began the whole process 
of humanity showing inhumanity to each other. The root of all of this is the dethroning of God to be replaced by ourselves. If you will, the coronation or the crowning of ourself as king. And uh, that's what we call autonomy. We looked at this way back in the fall when we began the for or against series. Mark said that was one of our causes. We've looked at it last week. We've looked at it many times. The problem is us. Autonomy. Okay? So Paul, he can begin his section on the sinfulness of God, Romans 1.18 through 3.20, with the idea that we've replaced God with a self. So Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. That's an important phrase. In other words, we have the choice. God's given us a choice. We are created to invite him, but because of the autonomy, we want to suppress the truth. We want to push him away. And we do it by our wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, His divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is true of every human on the planet. One of the things I love about traveling in third world countries and teaching now for 20 plus years is hearing the stories of how people came to know Christ. It's astounding to me. Every story is different. But what they all have in common is somebody decided to seek the truth rather than to suppress the truth. But he goes on. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That's autonomy. So he begins his whole section on sinfulness, talking about this whole approach of uh, how we've replaced God. And then when you get over to chapter 3, he concludes this section with the same information. He uses this whole long series of Old Testament quotes to show that there is no hope apart from Christ. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. I hear that carefully. Most are not righteous. That's not what he says. There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Boy, these are strong words to start and end his whole section on our sinfulness and the need for a Savior. And so we have lots of examples where this is true. Networking is real big right now, even uh, on the internet as well as in the workplace. Why do we network? We network to further an agenda. That's why. Why do we hire employees? To fulfill our goals. That's why. Why do we work to impress others? To gain some sense of value ourselves. Why do we get frustrated with our kids if they don't turn out like we want them to turn out. Why is that so important to us? Why do we get frustrated?
It was almost an adventure going to the emergency room. <laughs> Something different to do. And the, the staff there actually said, thanks for coming in and making our life interesting. You're the only one here tonight. <laughs> on and on and on it goes. You see, relationships becomes a means to an end, not the end. And this is the norm. This cannot be overturned until we have a healthy view of ourselves. Most of you know I went to counseling for a really great guy. What do you think makes a good pastor? He didn't even hesitate. Someone who knows themselves well and is comfortable with that. That's the beginning point of what it means to move, change this whole perspective. So we moved from seeking servanthood as a means to bless others. We moved from that to seeking servanthood as a means to power. So what happens when we remove the mask? Okay, so this is what it's like. This is the way we operate within our relationships till we turn to Christ. We take the mask away, the mask, and what happens? We are called back to our original created design to love one another as ourselves. Second greatest commandment. Those two commandments capture the entire Mosaic law. And I would argue all of God's law. The New Testament as well. We're called back to that, but the assumption now is that both are growing in health. We're called to the ministry of reconciliation, for example. We saw that last week in 2 Corinthians 5, helping others to come to God, to come to know God, as well as each other. We are reconcilers. We should help people that are in trouble, that are either in trouble with God or with each other. That's our goal. That's our purpose. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. We're called to be peacemakers. We're not called to get vengeance. We're not called to be angry. We're not called to seek that at all. Revenge? No, we're called to be peacemakers every place that we can turn. Um, Matthew 9, he goes on, we're called to be servants. In fact, he finishes that section. He said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. That's why he came to the earth. No other God in the history of the world has that language and that imagery. I came to you to serve you. And we're called to be servants. These passages are all over the place. We could look at many different ways. But this is Paul's message in Philippians 2. Thanks, Steve, for reading, reading part of Philippians 2 this morning. Philippians 2, the great passage on Jesus, his humility and our responsibility to emulate that so what he says in the beginning of this passage is that we're to value others first chapter 2 verse 1 therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with christ and by the way these are all written as if it's true do you have encouragement from being with christ yeah you do if there's any comfort from his love do you find comfort in following the lord i do If there's any common sharing in the Spirit, do we find unity together? Do we enjoy it when we as a church? I mean, isn't that one of the things we're missing? I love this morning, uh, uh, I didn't love the empty sanctuary, but I love turning around and seeing my wife standing by herself singing and worshiping the Lord while the band is up here playing. One person was standing. It was so fabulous, so great. If there's any tenderness and compassion Do we find that with each other? We should. This is what our church is becoming. 
if those things are all true, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. There's the unity. We're here for the same reason. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This is, I'm still convinced, you've heard me say it many times over the years, this is the primary responsibility of elders. It's not to make business decisions, although we have to do that. It's to make sure our church feels at peace, is shepherded, and feels unified. That's the biggest priority. He goes on, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, here it is, value others above yourselves. Now think about this. If we are to love others as ourselves and we have an accurate view that we love to do things to take care of ourselves, how much more important is it to value the people around us even more than that? Even more than that. Oh, I'm willing to spend money on myself. Am I willing to spend money on you? I'm willing to help myself give that sense of a Rest and relaxation, vacation, spa treatment or whatever. Am I willing to do that for you? That's what he's saying here. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests. He didn't say don't look at your own interests. He says, but not looking to that, but each of you to the interests of the others. Then he goes on in the second section, the famous passage about Christ. And here's the example of what we are to be like. In your relationships, verse 5, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God. He didn't give this up. He did not even consider this equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage or to be held on to. But rather, he made himself nothing. Could have stayed where he was, but he didn't. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's how valuable we are. Rob and I have had many discussions over the years about some of our music talking about we're not worthy. This statement seems to say the opposite. We are so important that God went after us to the point of sacrifice. Much like we would to our children. Many of us have had children that have been disobedient. We didn't stop loving them. They were worth going after. And that's the image that's pictured here. He created us. And when he finished creating us, he said, this is very, very good. And by the way, this is one of the things that distinguish Christianity from the other religions. In every other religion, the starting assumption is that you need to become better. Something different, I mean. You're not good enough. Whether it's reincarnation, emptying yourself, you name it. Uh, whatever it is. But in Christianity, you start with a real simple premise. You're made in the image of God, and that is very, very good. That's what he said. You're good. You're good. We become better. We don't become something different. When we turn to Christ and the mask is removed, we begin that journey, the wonderful, although hard and challenging journey of being transformed into his image, which means I become a better Jim. I don't become something different. I become a better me. And so 
Therefore, the result of this, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow (coughs) in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, relationships are no longer the means to our personal ends. Our reason for existing is to love God and love others. That's where we find our deepest joy. When the mask comes off, we begin to see ourselves more accurately because we're gazing more deeply into the eyes of the Lord, into his word, and we begin to reflect his glory to those around us by living out what he asks living out our holiness. And by the way, that's what Leviticus is all about. It's how to live out that holiness. So we have regained, if you will, both our purpose and our role. We saw last week that we have been given back self-understanding, but now we know what our purpose and role is. So we can put aside all of these distortions caused by sin and get back to our purpose. Get back to why we exist in the first place. Remember, we are stewards, not owners. It's important to remember that. The clearest example of that is for those of you that are in business or have businesses. We are stewards. We are not owners. Everything belongs to the Lord. And that was the original commandment in the garden. We are stewards and we reflect his image in at least four ways. Number one, with God. We talked about that the first week. Number two, with ourselves. We are stewards of ourselves. How we view ourselves reflects how we think about God. Number three, with our neighbors, that's today. Number four, we are stewards of creation. We're going to talk about that last week. Next week, I mean. We're going to circle back to that because that's the fourth one listed in Genesis. We are stewards. We're not owners. So what does all this mean? Let me give you some thoughts. I have a book by Scott McKnight called A Community Called Atonement. He asks a very uh, interesting question. Could it be that we are not reconciled more in this world among Christians within the USA and between countries because we have shaped our atonement theories to keep our group the same and keep others out? Is that an interesting question? Think about the question. Could it be that we are not reconciled more in this world among Christians within the USA and between the USA and other countries because we have shaped our atonement theories to keep our group the same and others out. It's moving into the realm of what we call colonialization. You have to become like us to be welcome. He goes, I believe the answer to that question is unambiguously yes, and I agree with him. I agree with him. And then he puts together what he calls two dialectical assumptions, uh, dialectical assumptions for this whole premise of his book. The gospel we preach shapes the kind of churches we create. Okay? The gospel that we preach creates, I mean, uh, shapes the kind of churches that we create. But then, listen to the opposite. The kind of church we have shapes the gospel that we preach. The gospel we preach shapes the kind of churches we create, but the kind of church we have 
shapes the gospel that we preach. That's why it is so critical to go here for the starting point, the centering point, if you will. What keeps us centered? As we move slowly to reopen our county and our church, you're all familiar with the uh, public health orders. They're trying to figure out all across the the nation how to restart everything and get people back to work and all of that. I want to take just a moment and look at the risks that are involved. I thought of three risks that we're going to face when we come back together. I mean, as, but we're, as we start moving, occupying the same space, to read the news headlines every day, <clears throat> for me, it's a source of uh, entertainment. It's not a source of knowledge. Polarization. We are already polarized as a nation. Um, and this is just going to be make it worse. Yeah, we have people in our churches that are absolutely convinced this is a hoax and a conspiracy. And we have people in our church that are absolutely terrified and panicked and think that if we don't do everything the government says, we're all going to die. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. We haven't even reached the bad part yet. And others are laughing at it, going, you've got to be kidding me. You know, just walk outside, walk to the post office. Half of them wear masks and half of them don't. And so we're polarized. And that leads to the second one, the second risk, division. Division. There's a real risk here. Every step of the way, and on our elders. And it takes a lot of work to stay unified. It's far easier to divide, especially when the fallen nature. And division is a real possibility, and we're going to have to work to overcome that. That's why Paul can say in Philippians, with humility or in humility, value others above yourselves. Is there any argument worth dividing over? Not really. The third one, if we're not careful, the lack of mercy. We've been very blessed. I personally don't know of anybody in our church that has died from this virus, this terrible virus. But yet the fallout in other ways is strong. We lost somebody in our county this week. He doesn't belong to our church, but boy, our high schoolers sure know him. It wasn't related to COVID-19, but we lost somebody and our teenagers are feeling it. Some of our families that know his family. We all know somebody who's lost somebody. One of my very good friends in Denver lost her father to COVID-19. He was very old and she has it. She's recovering, but she has it. I sorrow with her. Because she lost her father, and this is very hard. And so if we're not careful, the celebration will overpower, overpower that sense of people have been hurt. People are maybe frightened. And so there's another risk that we will have to enjoy the celebration. I look forward to raising my hands, praising God, standing right here, praising my God with a whole bunch of people right here with me doing it. I look forward to that. But at the same time, I really want to be sensitive and careful to those who have been hurt or are still frightened by it. Those who are vulnerable, those who have mitigating situations that make them very vulnerable to this disease. So those are three risks as we begin to regroup and come back together when the government allows us, then we need to think carefully about not polarizing, not dividing, and being careful with each other, showing affection. You see, the purpose of church is to reflect deeply into this mirror, uh, to look at it and gaze it, 
into it, to reflect deeply, to live out our holiness, which means loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's what it means. And to guard this. Put a lot of energy into guarding it. So for the sake of all of our friends, gaze deeply. You see, this is what Easter was all about. This is why Christ came back to create a community called Atonement. Father, thank you for, as we said many, many, many times, thank you for loving us, making it possible for us to return to you and to regain what we gave up and to move back to what we are created for. But even just as important as that is the privilege of partnering with you to show our friends and neighbors what that looks like so they can see it in very real ways. Help us as a church to reunite soon with a stronger unity, stronger heart for you and for each other to fulfill those two wonderful commandments, loving you and loving each other. In your son's name we pray, amen. Normally this is where we take the offering. Let me just say thank you for uh, all of you keeping us healthy. We're healthy as a church. And uh, yes, we're, we're doing a lot in our county. Thank you for making that possible. And uh, then normally we would celebrate communion. Well, we're not here to do it, so we're doing what we've done in the past. It's a nicer day today, so we're doing drive-through communion from 1130 to 130. Let me invite you. Uh, we've moved the communion to the back doors by the kitchen here. So just drive in along, come back here and let us serve you communion. We'll have the mask and all the things that we're supposed to have to keep you safe and you can keep us safe. Uh, I look forward, we look forward to looking in your eyes and blessing you and praying for you. Thank you.